Uh, if you have a Bible, or if actually if you don't have a Bible and want one, um, just raise your hand. The ushers will bring one to you. If you raise a couple of fingers, they'll bring you a pen if you need a pen. And if you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 11, because that's where I'm going to be reading from. Full disclosure here, I, uh, the message you're about to hear, I gave at the men's advance last year. So anybody, any of the men that were here that went to that, I apologize. But it was a message that uh, I felt was worth uh, repeating to the whole church. Uh, that, and I didn't have enough time to prepare a new one. But anyway, that's, <laughs> there you go. That is full disclosure. Matthew chapter 11, reading from verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we gather today on this first day of the week because this is the day we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that was Easter last weekend, but it's every weekend. Every Sunday is a resurrection Sunday. And so the life that Christ displayed as he conquered death, Lord, may that life infiltrate, permeate this service and bring our hearts to life as well. We ask this for his name's sake. Amen. Anyone here believe in time travel? Just curiously, just didn't know. Okay, we've got a couple of time travelers. That's great. Um, if you have a Bible, I would like to turn to the very last page of the Old Testament. I believe in time travel because this page here, as I turn this page from the Old to the New Testament, there is a 400-year gap. We go 400. You travel through time 400 years to the first page of Matthew. So time travel is possible, at least uh, on paper. So that's what happens uh, in your scriptures. 400 years, it's a long time. 400 years when the heavens are silent. No one speaks for God. There are no angelic appearances. There is no psalms, no songs, no miracles. There are no signs, no wonders, no Holy Spirit activity, no prophets, nothing. There's just silence. In fact, they become known as the silent years. That 400-year gap uh, is what it's called, the silent years. Now, let's turn the clock back 400 years in this country because let's get some kind of perception on the time span that we're talking about. What was going on um, around 1619 in this country? Well, in 1607, Jamestown was founded. 1610, Henry Hudson discovered the Hudson Bay. Uh, it wasn't called the Hudson Bay, but that's what it became. Uh, 1612, tobacco was planted for the first time in Virginia. 1614, Pocahontas marries John Rolfe. 1616, smallpox decimates the New England Native American population. And 1619, 400 years ago this year, the first slaves arrived 
in North America. Think how much this country has changed in the 400-year span since those early days. There's been a revolutionary war. There's been the establishing of a constitution and a presidency, a civil war, an agricultural revolution, an industrial revolution, the abolition of slavery, two world wars, votes for women, a Great Depression, the Cold War, a sexual revolution, a digital revolution, a social media revolution, a war on terror. And that's just some of the high spots. Massive amounts of change in a 400-year span. Well, the same is true for the land of Israel. Just because um, the, year that the heavens were silent did not mean God wasn't working, because he was. The world, all kinds of things were happening in the world. The Persian Empire gave way to the Greeks. Alexander the Great conquered the known world. But more importantly, he did something no conqueror or no nation before him had done. Rather than just conquering them and making them serfs and slaves, he imposed Greek culture and language on the nations. It was called Hellenization. If you ever see that word, Hellenizing, uh, that, that was, what was what was going on. And what he really did, he gave the, the uh, world a universal language, kind of like English today. He imposed a language that enabled people across cultures to communicate, which inadvertently was setting up the, uh, uh, the situation so that the gospel could be spread rapidly throughout the known world because of Alexander the Great. The first lighthouse was built during this period. Archimedes calculated pi. The Great Wall of China was constructed. And then Rome came to power and conquered even more of the world than Alexander had dreamed of. They built roads in ways that nobody had ever built before. There are still Roman roads that exist in Britain today because that's how well they built them. They, they built aqueducts, the first stone bridges in great cities were the Romans. Commerce and trade exploded as a result. It was a period of remarkable change. But the heavens were silent. No news from God. And then a rumor rippled throughout Judea. Have you heard? Did, did you know? There's a man in the wilderness. No. Can it be true? Some are saying he's a prophet. After all this time, has God finally remembered us? Uh, do you think he could be the one? You know, well, maybe. We should go check. So they did. By the score, by thousands, they, they went out into the wilderness to where John the Baptist was to hear him preach his message of repentance uh, and preparation for the way of the Lord because he was the one that was coming to proclaim the Messiah. They thought he might be the Messiah, but he was preparing the way, the preparing the ground. And uh, what did you go out into the wilderness to see, said Jesus? What did, you want, what did you expect, a man in five clothing? No. A prophet? Yes. You went to see a prophet, but more than a prophet. And Jesus says something quite remarkable here. He says, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, all right, so everybody, because you're all born of women, among those born of women, no one, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Think about that. That means not Noah or Abraham or Moses or Joshua or Samuel or David or Solomon or Daniel or Alexander the Great or Caesar Augustus. No one born of women has been, is greater than John the Baptist. Remarkable words. And yet... Jesus continues, and this is perhaps even more remarkable, 
Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now, what does that mean? What does he mean by that? Why is John the, the Baptist the greatest born of women? Because John got to herald the arrival of the Messiah, God with us, God in the flesh. And what on earth could be greater than being chosen for that task? But that second statement, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. If, I mean, who can possibly enter the kingdom of heaven if you have to be greater than the greatest man who's ever lived? You know, that's really what Jesus is saying here. I wonder if his listeners were like, what? We have to be greater than the greatest man who's ever existed? How is that even possible? Well, numerous theories have been put forward to explain Jesus' words here. Um, I'm going to give you one because the only one that makes any sense to me is the one I'm going to pass on to you that resonates with my own heart, and that has to do with our standing before God. Let me back up before we get to that, though. Numerous theories um, have been put forward, but most of you probably have heard have of uh, Rob Bell. Well, many, some of you may have, at least. He was a pastor in Michigan for some years. He put out a series of short 15-minute videos designed to be used as discussion starters, and one of them he titled Dust. And in that video, he addresses the education of children at the time of Jesus. And I want to credit Rob Bell with the information about educating children that I'm about to share with you, because I got it from him. Apparently, educating children in Jesus' day was a, was a huge deal, right? boys particularly. Um, there was an ongoing argument as to what age a rabbi should take a child uh, to, to begin his education. One rabbi made this statement, under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil, but from six upwards, we receive him and we stuff him with the Torah like an ox. All right. So age of six, they're going to get stuffed. What are they stuffing them with? Well, there were three stages, or up to three stages, of a child's education. There was uh, Beit Sefer, Beit Talmud, and Beit Midrash. And let me just touch on those. Beit Sefer was, means house of the book. And this phase involved Jewish boys between the ages of 10, 6 to 10, going to the synagogue and being taught by the rabbi, and being expected as part of this education to memorize the Torah. Now, the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, all right? Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Memorized by the age of 10. You know, the mind boggles at what, you know, kids can do. Beit Sefer was as much education as many children uh, received because at that point, a lot of them went, just went back to their homes, picked up the family business or, you know, trained in the uh, family trade. Uh, but the best of the best would be kept, and they would move on to stage two of the child's education, which was Beit Talmud, which means house of learning. And during Beit Talmud, when the boys were between the ages of 10 and 14, they'd go on to memorize the whole rest of the Hebrew Bible, which is the Old Testament as we know it. You know, I don't even know how, they, how they would, somebody could do that, but that was what was expected by the age of 14. When Beit Talmud came to an end, the majority still at that point however many that was, would go back home and then pick up family business and uh, an apprentice and so forth. But the best of the best of the best would go on, uh, you know, that they were the, the Harvard and Yale material. They continue to become a rabbi. And to become a rabbi meant following a rabbi. 
becoming a disciple. So these Harvard and Yale students would present themselves to a rabbi and say something along the lines of, Rabbi, I want to become your disciple. Please let me into your Beit Midrash, which means house of study. I want to become a study, a studier of who you are. Now, we generally use the word disciple to mean just simply student, and it does mean that. But actually, there's another layer beneath, because a student is somebody who just learns. You know, it's like, I want to know what you know, because if I sit in class, I take notes, because you're passing on information. And, but being a disciple is more than just knowing what the teacher knows. It means doing what the teacher does. So you become effectively uh, a clone, a copy of who the rabbi is. Knowing what they know, doing what they do. That's what a disciple was. And uh, the rabbis differed in how they interpreted the Torah. They'd take a verse or a command and they'd say, this is what it means to follow this command. This is what this verse means as we, have, we try to follow and be obedient to the Scriptures. So rabbis taught different things depending on their interpretation. And their set of interpretations was called that rabbi's yoke. Right? That rabbi's yoke. So when you applied to become a rabbi's disciple, what you were saying was that you wanted to take that rabbi's yoke upon you, to yoke yourself to them, to do what they did, to know what they knew, to say what they said. That's what you were doing. As an aside, that makes Jesus' words a little bit more understandable, doesn't it? When he says, take my yoke upon you, he's talking to his people, his disciples. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He was communicating as a rabbi. That wasn't just fine words. They were rabbinic words that he was saying. Anyway, once you'd apply to enter a rabbi's Beit Midrash, the rabbi would then grill you and ask you all kinds of questions about the Torah, the prophets, the oral traditions, his specific interpretations of those traditions, in order to find out if you were, in fact, the best of the best of the best. All right? And following that grilling, there will be some that would say, son, obviously you love God, you have a great heart, but I don't think you have what it takes to become my disciple. And so they would go home, probably disappointed, and, uh, and pick another path of life. But those that did make the cut would then become disciples of that rabbi, and they would follow him around everywhere. And uh, following is the right word, because the rabbis traveled around from synagogue to synagogue, and then they would teach and preach. And as they traveled the, uh, the dusty roads, um, they, those who were following would get literally covered in the dust of the rabbi that they were following. And so an expression rose up that the wise men uh, developed, and they would say to a disciple, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Meaning, may you be so uh, uh, like them that, you know, one is the other. May you be covered in his dust. Right? Come follow me were the key words. If he thought that you made the cut, you were the best of the best of the best, it was okay. You can come and follow me. So that, oops, that was what they did as they traveled around. Now, let's apply this to our understanding of Jesus. Most rabbis didn't accept any disciples until the rabbi themselves reached the age of 30, which is the age Jesus was when he began his ministry. There's no um, accident in that. And as he begins, Matthew 4, 18 to 22, we find him walking by the Sea of Galilee, where he comes across some fishermen, Peter and Andrew. 
And he says to them those deeply rabbinic words, come, follow me. Perhaps you've puzzled over that, you know, because first of all, they're fishermen, which means, you know what, they didn't make the cut. Now, whatever their education was, whether they just went to the uh, Beit Sefer or whether they made Beit Talmud, they were cut off at some point and sent back, and they're just doing the family business, all right, working with dad. But now here's Jesus coming. He knows they didn't make the cut because they're fishermen. And he says to them, come follow me. And uh, they drop their nets and they leave. Now, if you wondered in the past, well, that just seems kind of odd. Why would these guys, why wouldn't they say, who the heck are you? Where would follow you where? You know, no, no. They didn't do that because these were, you know, the rabbis were the most honored and revered people in the land. And to have somebody say those words to you, knowing you'd already not made the cut to say, come follow me, well, then this is a chance of a lifetime to become a disciple of a rabbi. And he's offered it to us. So they took it. Of course, the movies we've seen with Jesus in don't help us very much because our, our picture of that whole scene is colored by them. I mean, we see Jesus with quaffed hair and chiclet teeth, and, and he's wearing a white bathrobe with a uh, you know, blue Miss America sash around it, and, he, and he's like, come follow me. And so they all just follow behind, like little chicks behind a hen. But, and it wasn't like that. This was, this was a deeply ingrained cultural experience that these, these, these fishermen had when this rabbi comes to them and calls them. Only the best of the best of the best got to follow a rabbi, to become a rabbi. But this one, down on the beach, says to them, says to us the same, those words, come follow me. If you follow the implication of what he's saying, he's saying to them, and he says to us, because the call to us is the same, I think, Jesus says, I think you have what it takes to do what I do and to know what I know, to be my mouth and be my hands. That's what he's saying to them. No wonder they dropped their nets and followed. Same thing happens just a short time later with James and John. They are also fishermen, working with dad. Zebedee is his name. And we know they didn't make the cut either. They weren't the Harvard or the Yale. They were the B team. They were the JV. They were the not good enoughs. And yet here's this rabbi standing before them saying, come, follow me. And, you know, dad doesn't kick a complaint. Hey, where are you going? Get back here. We've got nets to mend. Because, and again, everybody knows that this is something special that we're being invited into. These, these nobodies that uh, are being invited to follow the Lord Jesus. And he's communicating loud and clear that his kingdom is for everybody. It doesn't matter what you do, your age, your gender. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're rich or poor, whether you're educated or uneducated. As far as Jesus is concerned, you are good enough to become my disciple. I'm telling you you're good enough by calling you to be my disciple. All right? That's the whole premise of the system. The rabbi only accepts those he believes can make it and be like him. So now fast forward three years. They've been following Jesus around, being covered in his dust for three years. And his last words to his disciples are, now you go and make disciples. What's written up there? Go make disciples yourselves. 
They have become his disciples, and he's passing the mantle on to them. Now go yoke others to you. Teach them about me. Teach them everything, to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the end of the age. To these nobodies, he, he hands the kingdom and says to them, you know, I believe you can do it. And you know what? They do. They do. They go out and they change the course of human history. These who didn't make the cut. So with all this in mind, let me go back to the original question, which you've probably forgotten by now, which was, how can the least in the kingdom of heaven be greater than John the Baptist, whom Jesus says is the greatest ever to be born of women? Well, here's how. Every follower of God, up to and including John the Baptist, was only ever born of women. That's all they were, born of a woman. But as Jesus told Nicodemus when he came to him that night and said, uh, you know, he wanted to be his disciple, and he said, you know, that, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. You have to be born again, all right? So you're born of woman, but there now needs to be a new birth, a rebirth. And uh, that is what the difference is between John and everybody before him and the least and the smallest disciple from there on. Because prior to the kingdom, which now is within us, Jesus said, the kingdom is within you, the Holy Spirit would just come on people at different times and different seasons to accomplish tasks for, for, for prophetic reasons, whatever. Well, now, the reason that Jesus can open his arms wide to everybody and then say, whosoever will may come, is because he's going to indwell us. He's going to plant himself within us by his Spirit to enable us to do what he does and to say what he says, to become like him. That's the offer that he makes to us. That's about being born again, indwelt, sealed with his spirit. God himself takes up residence in the lives of his disciples so they can do the unthinkable, the unimaginable, and be like him. What does Peter say in his second letter? His divine power, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. It's not, I did this. No, no, his power has given me. He can enable me to live a life of godliness. So the question becomes for us, those who claim to be his followers, really is this, do I believe that? Do I really believe that fact? Can it really be true that Jesus says to me, and to you, to the members of the B team, the JV, I believe you have what it takes to be my disciple. I believe you can house my kingdom within you. You can make disciples of others. Come, follow me. We so want to believe that, don't we? Because we want those of us who uh, have accepted the forgiveness that he offers through his death that we celebrated last weekend, we want to become more like him. We want his life to be manifest in us. We want him to be seen in our words and our actions. But we struggle to believe it, at least I do, because no matter how hard we try to follow him, it seems that the real genuine transformational life change that we, we dream and pray and hope for is always just fingertips out of reach. It's just around the next corner. We never feel we quite get there. And it's like, well, I, I really want Christ 
to be seen and revealed in me? Why does it always seem to be so just out of reach? Follow you, Jesus? I've been trying to follow you. I'm sick of trying. I've tried it all. It must just be me, because I hear other people talking about how you're changing their lives, but mine just seems to say pretty much the same, and I don't get it. And I'm clueless as to what to do next. I just, I don't know what, what to do. Ever felt that way? I have. But I think there's a reason that we do. And I think the reason is, is what we hear underneath his words when he says, follow me. When we hear Jesus say those words to us, a lot of times, especially because of the culture we live in, we hear him really saying, okay, guys, I've done the heavy lifting, you know, the death, the resurrection thing. I did all that. Now, you, it's your turn. Get a hold of your bootstraps. Try to keep up. Work harder. Stop dragging your spiritual heels. Get off your spiritual butts and try harder to become more like me. Follow me. That's what we hear. Try harder. But if that even remotely describes how anyone here feels this morning about their Christian journey, then I've got some good news for you. Because that is not what Jesus is saying. Try harder. Try to be more like Jesus is not the gospel. All right? That is not good news. That's terrible news. I just have to try harder to be like Jesus. I came to him because I wasn't like him in the first place. Now that I've accepted, I want to be his disciple. Now he says, just buck up, try harder. No, I can't do that. So we struggle and we wrestle because we think, you know, we have to do it. And that's the problem with this. You see, it puts the onus on us. I have to do it. I have to try harder. That makes my Christian faith an intolerable burden instead of something that frees me and releases me to live before God. I just have to try hard to be just like there, to just display the character and life of Jesus. Can't do it. Never going to happen. Following Jesus is not about trying hard to be like him. It's about believing differently because it starts in our minds. What does it say in Romans? Be transformed, not by trying hard, but by the renewing of your mind. It's about what you believe that will impact how you live. So we need to change the way we think, the way we believe, so that our life is impacted. After the crucifixion, you know, the events of last weekend, the disciples are just kind of going about life. They're, they're lost. They have no idea what's going on. And two of them are walking to Emmaus, and Jesus kind of joins them on the road, and they don't recognize him. And they break bread together in the evening and their eyes are opened and they see who it is and he disappears. He does this a lot for 40 days, just appears and disappears. And they're like, wow, that was Jesus. So they hightail it back to Jerusalem, which is about seven miles from Emmaus. And they tell the disciples who are in the, in the locked away you know, behind closed doors, like, we saw the Lord, he was with us. And they're like, oh yeah, right, really. And then suddenly Jesus appears, all right? In Luke 24, this is what we read. While they were still talking about this, meaning the two guys back telling everybody, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened. You bet they were, you know, because suddenly, imagine if Jesus, I'm talking to you here, and poof, Jesus appears on the stage. I think you'd all go, what? You know, that would be the natural reaction, which is what they did. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost, all right? They were not expecting Jesus' resurrection. This is a ghost. This is an apparition. So Jesus has to prove himself to them. Give me something to eat. 
because uh, ghosts don't normally eat very much. If you've seen Casper and things, you know, food just goes straight through them. Jesus is like, give me something, give, give me something to eat. He's proving to them, look, it's real, it's really me. And then they're like, they're overjoyed because it sinks in slowly. He's really here. He's physically, he's, he's risen. This isn't an apparition. This isn't some ghostly thing. This is really Jesus in the flesh. He is alive. And he says to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Much to the surprise of his followers, Jesus had died. All right? They really weren't expecting that. But if they were surprised that he died, they were totally flabbergasted that he rose again. All right? Despite, which is interesting because Jesus told them repeatedly that he was going to do both. But even if somebody that we trust implicitly tells us some information that doesn't fit with the facts of life as we know it, it's very hard for those facts to be grasped and held onto as true. Because it was Jesus who told them these things, but they still didn't expect it to happen. Because, well, they didn't know anybody who risen from the dead. It's not like, well, Bob got raised last week and Jesus is here now, so, hey, this happens all the time. No, it doesn't. So they were not expecting that at all. So when Jesus appears... Their eyes are popping and their minds are blowing because what does he say? He says he opened their minds. So they're having an eye-popping, mind-blowing experience as it really sinks in. He's alive. He's alive. Jesus is really here. But I want you to notice something. As he talks to them, he is not telling them anything new. Verse 44 in, uh, in, Luke, 12, um, in Luke 24 this is what I told you while I was still with you. So earlier on, I told you this stuff. He's not giving them new information. He's simply reiterating to them things that they said they believed, things to which they'd already given an academic nod. You see, if you'd given the disciples a test, a theological test, after their three-year period of discipleship training, and, and on the test it said, uh, um, is he going to die? Yes. You know, is he going to rise again? Yes. How do you know? Well, he said so. All right. he could, they could have answered those questions. They'd have got them right. They'd given an academic nod to what was said, but they really were not expecting it to be true. They, you see, they didn't genuinely believe it. It was necessary, therefore, for the Lord Jesus to come to them and help them to do something very, very basic. He came to help them believe what they believed. Believe what they believed. And as time goes by, I'm increasingly convinced that those of us who have been followers of Christ for any length of time, those of us who have grown up in the church, those of us who are perhaps well-versed in Scripture, but well-grounded in truth, we have an overwhelming need, and that is that we, like the disciples, need the same kind of mind-blowing, eye-popping experience that comes from simply, practically, getting around to believing what we believe. Because you see, if we sat down and took a test, if I handed out pieces of paper this morning, gave you a pen, they say, okay, have you given your life to Christ? Yes. You know, are you seeking to follow God? Yes. I don't know. Are, you, uh, are you doing all you're supposed to be doing? Are you crossing your T's, dotting your I's? Are you having devotions? Are you going to church? Yes. You know. Is your faith dull? Is it tedious? Are you bored out of your skull because your life isn't changing the way you hoped? 
Yes, maybe. You know? If we really believed what we say we believe, there's no way we're going to put, yeah, this is really kind of dull and boring. This whole following Jesus thing, it's just kind of flat. No, we couldn't answer that without enthusiasm in our voices because he's alive and he's changing my life and I get to see him at work. And I, I, I say things in a conversation, somebody raises something, and I'm like, where did that come from? Well, you know what? God is within me. He can enable me. He can put thoughts in my head and I can say things that surprise me. You know, I'm way more intelligent than I thought I was because I came up with a, a wonderful answer to that question. You may be some of your experience of that. And that's what he does. Because the journey with him is supposed to be lived out, covered in his dust, all right? Doing what he does, saying what he says, because the kingdom is within. It's not about me just trying hard. If we believed what we believe, our minds will be blowing and our eyes will be popping because Christ himself lives within us. If we were to turn to him this morning and say, do you really mean to say that you, risen from the dead, empower your people to be and to do everything that you want them to be and do. He'd say, yes, it's exactly what I mean. It's exactly what I mean. And I submit that what will keep most of us firmly following him for the rest of our days will be to move out of the realm of academic nods and into the realm of reckless abandon to believing that which we've always already given an academic nod and saying, I want to live this, and saying, God, I want you to make this live within me. Not pulling ourselves up by bootstraps, believing what we believe. And that is how our lives are transformed. I want to close with an illustration from uh, the movie Hook with Robin Williams, which some of you may remember. It's an old movie. There's a scene in there that stayed with me ever since I first saw it. If you're unfamiliar with Hook, um, it takes place after Peter Pan has left Neverland and he's returned to the real world and uh, he's grown up. He's now an adult and he's a lawyer. He's got a job and he's married and he's got kids. He marries Wendy's granddaughter. And, uh, and he thinks, you know, he's now, the whole Neverland thing, he's kind of blotted that out from his, his mind because that just like, just like childhood fantasy now, that didn't really happen. And so he's convinced himself it was unreal. Well, he comes home from work one day as a lawyer and his kids are gone. And there are kind of rip marks down the side of the hallways and down the stairs because Captain Hook came and stole his kids. Now, he doesn't know this, but uh, he just thinks they've been kidnapped. Well, they have. Well, then Tinkerbell shows up, and, you know, he thought this whole thing was just f fantasy, and she's there, and she convinces him, no, Hook has your kids. He's bored. He needs somebody to compete with, and, and you need to go back and rescue your kids. And so he allows Tinkerbell to persuade him that he has to head back to Neverland and rescue his kids. He can't really believe what's happening. It all seems so outlandish. But when he arrives, some memories begin to stir, seem to come back. And he discovers from things that he, as he, as he explores the island that he's on, that he really was Peter Pan. He is Peter Pan. At least, he gives it an academic nod. He acknowledges there are some of these things that, well, okay, maybe that really is the, the case. But he doesn't really believe it yet because he can't fight, he can't fly, and he can't crow. The three things the pan should be able to do, he can't do them. And the lost boys, who think he's gotten old and fat, are like, well, you know, we're not sure whether you... And they, they think maybe he is the pan, so they put him on a training regime, and they run around the island, and, they, and he's trying to leap and jump, and he can't... And it's, it's terrible. 
Nothing comes back, and it's a very discouraging day, and he's exhausted at the end of the day, and he sits down at the table with the Lost Boys, this big banquet table, and, uh, and they're all digging into the food, which he can't see, all right? There's empty plates and bowls, and, and the kids are all there, they're, they're chewing on things, and they're, they're serving stuff up and, and eating it with their hands, and it's just not, there's nothing there, and he's just totally confused. What are they doing? There's nothing on the table, because he can't see it. Well, then Rufio, who took over as kind of leader of the Lost Boys after Pan left, challenges him to a slanging match, right? With an insult, this insult one another. But of course, Peter's now an adult. He's like, oh, no. Well, Rufio baits him and sucks him in. So they just start going at it, these, these uh, insults back and forth. And, and uh, Peter discovers he's pretty good at this, and he wins. And he finally puts Rufio down, and Rufio is crushed. And just in the moment of excitement, he dips his spoon, his wooden spoon, into this empty bowl in front of him, and he holds it back, and he flicks nothing off his spoon at Rufio. And to his utter shock, a big blob of goop lands right in Rufio's face. And he looks at his spoon, he looks down at the table, and he sees it's just a fabulous spread of food and steaming meats and vegetables and, and, and pastries. It's just fat, and, it's, and all the boys are eating it. And one of the lost boys leans in from the side and he says, you're doing it, Peter. You're doing it. What's he doing? He's beginning to believe what he said he believed. He'd given an academic nod that he was the pan, but now he's really beginning to believe it. And he can see and experience what he couldn't see and experience before because he didn't really believe it. He just had given it a nod. And as he believes it, he discovers that he can fight, and he can fly, and he can crow. He is the pan and he starts living the reality of what he said he was. Well, some of us may be feeling that way this morning, a little like the pan. We've been following Jesus around, but so much of the time we feel like we're sat at the table of faith wishing we could see what it was that everyone else was feasting on at this table, wondering how they could be so enthusiastically enjoying something we can't even see. So we cry out, to the Lord Jesus, we cry, Rabbi, Lord, you called me. I want to follow you. Help me to believe what I say I believe. Take hold of my life. Indwell me. Remake me. Help me to fight and fly and crow, metaphorically. God, empower me to be and do all that you want me to be and do. And I believe as we say that, the heavenly host leans in and whispers to us, you're doing it, Paul. You're doing it. You're doing it, Mary. Bob, you're doing it. Sally, Jerry, Maggie, Hannah, Josh, put your own name in. You're doing it. You're beginning to believe what you say you believe, and your life will never be the same again. Because now the life of the one who has come to live within you can start being expressed in a way that is not you. And you know it's not you because it wasn't there before. And you haven't really changed, but you've allowed the living Christ to become alive rather than just something that you've acknowledged on the outside, believing what you believe. If we learn anything from the ministry of Jesus Christ, I believe this is his greatest desire, that we respond to his call to follow him, that we 
the B team, the JV, the not good enoughs, become his Talmudin, and he becomes our rabbi. So my prayer as you leave this morning and head out into the frenzy of yet another week, I pray that you would be covered in the dust of your rabbi and that you would hear him say to you afresh, come, follow me, and that we, in response, would incrementally begin believing what we say we believe. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that you do not have a standard for us to attain before we can enter your kingdom. You don't hold up some measure and say, if you can't reach this, then you don't get to join. But rather, you came down to us and you threw your arms wide and you said, come, come, follow me. I believe you have what it takes despite your brokenness and your hurts, despite your background and your current flaws and faults, despite the things you've done, the things you've thought about doing, despite anything, I can live within you and I can make you like me. I can transform your heart. I can put a heart of flesh where there is a heart of stone. I can help you to fight and fly and crow because I will be the one doing those things within you. God, I pray that we would start to believe what we believe, that we would allow you to embrace us, that we throw our arms wide in response and say, God, I want to follow you. I want my life to mirror your own, but I know it is never going to do that unless you take up residence and I give you free reign and I move from academic nods into reckless abandon to that rain being true in my life. God, we make this our prayer, this resurrection Sunday morning, for your son's sake. Amen. God bless you, third service. Have a wonderful snow-free week, and uh, <laughs> enjoy seeing you another day. <laughs>